Hi, friends. This is Michael Bauman from The Ringer MLB Show. On today's episode, we're going to talk about the latest managerial moves. We're going to look ahead to what promises to be a very weird free agency. And Ben is going to continue to no-sell my jokes before we send you all into the offseason by revisiting our preseason predictions. All that and more coming right up. This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive that sets the pace and seating for up to seven adults. With zero to 60 speed that throws you one moment and available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. This episode is brought to you by UGG. Y'all know UGG is a brand that athletes wear all the time in the tunnel and on travel days. Well, I bet you think UGG season is only during the colder months of the year. Oh, contraire. You're wrong. You need to check out the latest spring drop from UGG. They have everything from sandals to clogs. I like the sandals. UGG has you covered for your next spring adventure. Shop the Golden Collection at UGG.com. Well, it is Wednesday morning, November 4th, 2020. I'm Michael Bauman, and I'm fine. Uh, joining me today is uh, Ringer staff writer and the new newest member of the Illinois State Legislature, Zach Cram. How you doing? Yeah, let's talk baseball. Let's do it. You're you're one step away from your one uh, uh, middle brow TV star divorce from becoming uh, a U.S. senator and the presumptive Democratic nominee in four years. How does that feel? I don't think I'm old enough. Well, that's one of the uh, the qualifications, yeah, right? You got to be that. 35. All right, let's move on. Ben Lindbergh, how you doing? <laughs> doing great. Never been more in the mood for some hot stove discussion. Yeah, let's talk about baseball, which I'm sure anybody <laughs> gives a damn about right now. Maybe you should just sit on this podcast until uh, the results in. <laughs> at least uh, we're not announcing the Gold Glove winners at 8 p.m. on so, election day on this podcast. Uh, this was not in the rundown, but I think we ought to talk about that. This is the first time I have ever watched the Gold Glove announcement. <laughs> oh wow! They were happening because okay. <laughs> what was that like? Well, I I was sitting down. I watched uh, uh, the candidate after I made dinner, uh, the the Robert Redford classic. And mm-hmm. at eight o'clock came around. And I thought I was gonna uh, turn on cable news and watch the election returns. And I just had like a I seized up. I had like a full body no. Moment, <laughs> so I just turned on ESPN, and it was quite pleasant. Mark Teixeira saying good things about, uh, saying good things about the advanced defensive metrics, even though it's you know as much of a, a fool's errand as polling a presidential election has turned out to be. Uh, evaluating defense on a purely statistical basis over sixty games, even more so, and yet that's how we've decided to dole out the gloves or the, right. the gloves. So there was that's what I'm calling it now. It the was gloves. You. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, it, it was strangely therapeutic. So I appreciate, I don't know, like, I don't know if it was well thought out, but it, se- it <laughs> seems to have uh, uh, roped in at least one one viewer. So maybe this is not well thought out. Roping in at least one viewer seems to be very on brand for, for Major League Baseball. The shy gold glove watchers. All right, let's catch up. The big news is actually about a week old. Uh, so we're not going to go into too much detail on this, but it is pretty big news. The two managerial hirings from last week, Tony La Russa, the Chicago White Sox, after, uh, you know, this announcement feels like it was nine years ago. So I guess Tony La Russa managed the St. Louis Cardinals like back in the Bronze Age. And A.J. Hinch is the first member of the uh, the exiled Astros leadership structure to be welcomed back into baseball. He has washed up in Detroit pulling the reverse Verlander. So, uh, Zach, why don't, you and I had, I, I think, similarly negative reactions to the TLR hiring. So why don't you you kick off with uh, with what you thought when this this news uh, actually broke? Well, I believe Rick Hahn, the White Sox GM, said he was looking for a manager with recent championship experience, and I guess he just has a liberal definition of the word recent given that Larusa won last in 2011. Of course, it seems like this was not Rick Hahn's decision. It was very much from the owner, Reinsdorf, who uh, regretted f- 
letting Larusa go back before I was born, and uh, wanted to rectify that. Back mistake before all of us were born, by the way. Like yeah. this is not just <laughs> Zach Cram is, is barely post fetal. Like Ben and I are old as hell, and Larusa was gone before we were born too. Um, and I think there are reasons to laugh at this hire, partly because of that reason, partly because of the amazing stats you can have, like LaRusso will have managed both Minnie Minoso and Luis Robert. And I think those are always fun little quirks, but there are real concerns with this hire as well. And Mike, I think you did a great job writing them up for the site in part because of LaRusso's view on like analytics, but that's not really the concern I have. The concern is LaRusso's view of what, the game of baseball should be and how it should be celebrated. He has criticized as recently as this last year, Fernando Tatis's swinging at a three Oh pitch, which we all talked about on the spot as kind of a, not necessarily a turning point, but a signal of how unwritten rules and norms have changed. But Larusa has not. And Larusa said, no, Tatis shouldn't have swung at that pitch. I'm curious how he will react when someone like Tim Anderson, uh, acts in a way that flaunts the the so-called unwritten rules. Larusa has also criticized uh, Colin Kaepernick and criticized people who kneeled for the national anthem when a number of White Sox players did that this past year. And I know Larusa has talked about evolving uh, with that view and talked about uh, understanding that differently in his introductory press conference. But you have to, I think, you have to do more and it's hard to give him the benefit of the doubt when he's opined on such things before, when he supported the law in Arizona last decade that basically allowed police officers to stop anybody who looked like an immigrant and force them to show their, their immigration papers. And I think there are a number of legitimate concerns about LaRusse's ability to handle this clubhouse. And that's not just me saying it. That's not just Mike saying it. Jeff Passan and others have reported that people within the White Sox organization are concerned about LaRusse's ability to connect with this clubhouse. And the way he was hired is disturbing, I think, both from a White Sox process standpoint and also just from a league-wide initiative to get my, uh, more diversity in the dugout. This is not the way you do it. I mean, they reportedly did not interview anyone else. This seemed to be purely just a, a Jerry Reinsdorf decision. And I think that won't fly well with the front office, right? I mean, even if Larusa were a, a great choice to be the manager here, I think the way he was hired has a lot of problems with it. Because if you're Rick Hahn, if you're the other people in the front office, you're going to feel cut out of that decision. Larusa's not going to feel obligated, I don't think, to work with those people to take their input to be part of some collaborative process because clearly he's the boss's choice, right? And he's not going to get fired unless Jerry Reinsdorf turns on him. There's a, an audience of one, seemingly, that Larusa really has to please here. So I think that's a problem, you know, letting Rick Renteria go to hire another old white guy and not to have talked to anyone else. I think is a problem. And to me, it's just like, look, Larissa is a Hall of Fame manager. He's won three World Series. He was ahead of many innovations that I think turned out to be the way baseball is played today. Like that 2011 World Series team, the one that Larissa won with the Cardinals, he really used the bullpen hard in the postseason in a way that a lot of teams do today. And he was ahead of the game when it came to things like trying out an opener-like system or playing matchups or, you know, using the bullpen disproportionately. But I think, hey, it's been a very long time since that happened. And can he still be at the forefront today? Like, what's the upside here? I mean, maybe he'll be as competent as the next best choice. That's kind of the upside. I don't think the upside here is that he was way better than the next best available candidate. And the downside is extreme. Like, I'm not saying it's definitely going to happen, but there is absolutely Bobby Valentine with the Red Sox potential of this just completely falling apart and him not gelling well at all with the team. So I don't think the risk is worth the reward. Yeah, I. Uh, so I want to jump off. That's that's a great point. And it's not even Bobby Valentine with the Red Sox, which was almost as far in the past as Tony La Russa's last uh, managerial gig like Jerry Reinsdorf just went through this with Jim Boylan with the Bulls like they they should know the the potential downside of having a manager or a head coach 
who has the potential to alienate the clubhouse. And I want to go back to what you said, Ben, about diversity. It's not just about diversity. It's not just about getting different looking faces into the dugout. It's about equity and and who gets to make these decisions and who actually gets to be put in a in a powerful position like managing a, a major league baseball team and who gets to put people in those in in those positions. And from a process perspective, if baseball is actually trying to become a more just, and more equitable workplace, this is the wrong hire and the wrong way to go about it. And, you know, I'm going to make tons of jokes about his age. His age isn't isn't the problem. Like you can do this job at, at 76. You can do this job after having a decade out of the, out of the game. And you know, I think that people's political uh, opinions, problematic, even you know, problematic though they may be, can evolve. But uh, but Larusa was so vocal. He was so out there. He was going out of his way to support these right wing causes to the point where. Maybe he's evolved, but he doesn't get the benefit of the doubt on that. And for not just Tim Anderson and a lot of these uh, young black and Latino players he's going to manage, but guys like Lucas Giolito, who's been very active on the opposite side of of racial justice issues, that could cause a, I mean, in addition to it just being a bad thing, full stop, that could, that could cause a, a lot of friction in that clubhouse. And the last thing I want to say is who's, because LaRusse is getting this gig, Who's not getting that look? Who's not getting that interview? Which which candidates might have gotten that first interview that puts them on the carousel that makes people think of them as a future manager? And even or even if they don't get the job now, that's one of the functions of something like the Rooney role in the NFL. Fraught, you know, even though that's turned out to be pretty fraught. But like the the purpose behind that that process is to get the foot in the door and who's not getting their foot in the door because Jerry Reinsdorf has a 35 year old, uh, regret it's so yeah, there's a lot that I don't like about that. There's a lot that I don't like there. There's a lot that, that a lot of people don't like about this, this hire. Um, so yeah, because, because this is a week old and because I already wrote about it, we don't need to, I said we were going to do this pretty quickly. We've already spent longer than I wanted to talking about it, but it's, uh, just, such an obvious move in the wrong direction that that we really needed to to address it. I think. And what a news dump for the Tigers getting AJ Hinch when everyone oh, was man. concerned about Larusa. Yeah, what this they had to be rubbing their hands together because imagine bringing back the guy who oversaw the banging scheme, which which pissed off more baseball fans than maybe anything since steroids, and he's the most popular managerial hire in your division that week. That's that's really, really fantastic timing by the Tigers. I think you're exactly right. And I think uh, we talked about this back in January. Uh, talk about what seems like it happened in the Bronze Age. But A.J. Hinch overseeing the Astros science healing scheme, either one or of two possibilities happened. Either... He lied to MLB investigators and he was actually centrally involved in the execution of the scheme, which is obviously a problem or the the report is true and he didn't approve of it. But that shows he has ineffectual leadership over I the think clubhouse. That's worse. I exactly. I would rather, yes, I would, it is worse. Yes. For being for being in a position of power, having your assistant coaches or some of your veteran players doing something like that, if you find it reprehensible and like you're biggest response is to be passive aggressive about it like that that raises more red flags and lying to lying to the baseball cops for me um with that said you know i don't hate this hire i think that uh you know i've always thought that hinch was was a good manager you know this is probably not a very popular opinion but he's one of very few people who is involved in this who's actually suffered any consequences uh so you know, one year suspension getting fired is nothing to sneeze at. And I think he's still got a long way to go uh, in terms of rehabilitating his image. Uh, but I hate this hire way less than I hate the other one. Yeah, I think people will be upset about how quickly it happened. The fact that they called him like during the last World Series game to get to say, get over here. They talked to him on Thursday. They inter they hired him on Friday. It was just really fast. I think anyone who thought, well, he should maybe have to earn his way back in, you know, maybe make him a bench coach for a year, maybe make him wait a little while longer to ascend to the same position he had. That didn't happen. And Alex Cora, it seems like, is interviewing for the Red Sox job, which we'll talk about in a second. So 
there was no real additional period that these guys were made to wait. And I think a lot of people will feel upset about that, but they don't come with the same concerns that Larusa comes with. They come with a different set of concerns. And if you're a Tigers fan, you know, depending on how you feel about the sign stealing scandal, you're probably pretty happy to have the guy who shepherded the Astros from terrible team to best team in baseball, even accounting for the sign stealing scandal. Like he's done this before. The Tigers seem like they're approaching the point where they're ready to make that leap. And Hinch has been a front office guy. He's been in the dugout fairly recently. He does have recent championship experience tainted as it may be. And there are no concerns, I think, about his uh, progressiveness when it comes to analytics and in game managing and working with a front office and that aspect of things. So I think he's... uh, gotten off easy maybe because he's been remorseful because he seems to feel bad about not doing anything and I agree with you guys that just not doing anything and you know taking a bat to video monitors instead of actually saying hey knock it off just does not reflect well on his leadership abilities but you don't have the same concerns about the other aspects of the job yeah and I think that the even as I'm, I'm sort of hand waving away the the concerns about Hinch. I think the the same criticism of who's not getting this chance because the team went out out of their way to hire a candidate with so much baggage. I think that's a that's a valid criticism, even uh, as someone who doesn't really have a problem with this hire. Um, you know, it's but I I do think that there's more evidence than Hinch, that Hinch is the kind of manager that you would want to go out of your way to hire uh, than there is with Larusa. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I don't know if this is the exact hire I would make in this way, but I, I think it's more. De- it's definitely more defensible than, than what the White Sox did. And where where do you guys fall on the possibility of of the Red Sox just rehiring Cora? Which it sits worse with me, and this might be a stupid reason, but because they fired him and they're just going to hire him again, or supposedly just going to hire him again after the suspension is, is is over, like it adds a level of artifice to the firing that that just sort of goes down weird. And I don't I don't know if that's a a fair criticism or even a coherent one, but I'm curious what you guys think. I agree in part because it seemed like the Red Sox didn't really care about the 2020 season. They traded their best player who ended up uh, leading the Dodgers to the World Series, and they didn't even bother staffing a a real pitching rotation or bullpen. So I think it was it, it does almost seem like they said, okay, Cora, just take a year off. We're not going to really try anyway, and we'll welcome you back with open arms. And so it seems like they they just basically used it as a mulligan. So when you talk about what the punishment was for for these managers, like for Cora, it doesn't seem like there was a punishment at all. He just got to stay home instead of managing the Red Sox to like 20 wins in 60 games. Yeah, it would surprise me if it happens, I think. And Cora was not implicated in the Red Sox sign-stealing report the way he was implicated in the Houston one. But the way he was implicated in the Astros one was very damaging. He wasn't just there. He wasn't just present. He was (laughs) deeply involved in crafting the scheme, seemingly. So I think that reflects even worse on him, probably, than what Hinch did or or didn't do. They're both bad in their own ways. But I think maybe because that stain isn't on him during his Red Sox tenure, it would be easier to rehire him. But it it just sort of surprises me that Heim Bloom, for one, would want to do that because he wasn't the one who hired Cora the first time. And it's sort of surprising to me that he wouldn't want to just move on and, you know, hire his own person who does not come with some sort of sign stealing shadow hanging over him. So in addition to the managerial vacancies, we still have GM vacancies, the Angels, Marlins and Phillies, the Marlins, for some reason, decided what a weird front office, like what decided that after a shock playoff playoff appearance uh, that now is the time to part with Michael Hill, who's been booted around that uh, that front office like like a soccer ball. Um, The Angels and Phillies will see who. Uh, who gets to call the shots and uh, turn tons of money into a 500 team, which seems like uh, the destiny for that's locked in for both of those teams. So less less smoke in, uh, with those front office vacancies than, than with the, the managerial roundup. But 
bunch of other people looking for jobs are players. Uh, free agency started on Sunday. No major signings as of yet. We expect this to be, Ben wrote about this, we expect this to be uh, a unique offseason. I think it's a, a good euphemism for this. Uh, sort of slow-moving, sort of late 80s collusion era levels of, of activity. Um, yeah, Ben, you you went into to detail on this. Uh, how, how alert should we be waiting for... Uh, JT Real Muto or Trevor Bauer, some of the other top free agents to sign after a pretty brisk offseason last year. Yeah, I think it's going to take a while unless the players are just so wary of what this market is going to look like that they spring for the first half decent offer. But it's really, I think, going to be kind of a, a fraught offseason in a number of ways. I christened it the fraught stove season. I may as well use that here, too. I think it's just going to be a, a whole lot of negative stories about baseball between now and spring training, whenever spring training starts, which is one of the concerns, I think, is that COVID is obviously still hanging over the game. We don't know if we're going to get a full season next year, if it's going to start on time, or if fans are going to be loud in the park. And I think because of that uncertainty about attendance and the revenue that teams can count on from that, there is a corresponding uncertainty when it comes to spending this offseason. And it seems pretty clear from everything the owners have said recently, or even going back to the beginning of the coronavirus crisis, that they are planning to slash budgets that they are not going to spend as much as they normally would. And even under non-pandemic conditions, you know, two, three off seasons ago, they were already tightening budgets and, you know, looking for any reason not to spend big on veteran free agents, at least. So I think we're in for more of that, probably to an even greater degree. And Rob Manfred started you know, sounding that refrain even before the World Series ended. He he couldn't help himself, you know, between, I think, games five and six of the World Series. He was talking about how MLB teams had accrued record debts this year and record operational losses. And sure, you know, in a season with 60 games and almost no fans in the stands, it stands to reason that there would be perhaps some losses, perhaps some more debt accrued. Like, it's a tough time for everyone. I think MLB is not immune to those concerns. But, of course, MLB has had boom times for years, and franchise values have risen and risen no matter what is going on in the country yeah, what and the world. Steve Cohen <laughs> just pay for the right. Mets, one of the most dysfunctional uh, teams in baseball, two right. two point four billion dollars. Right. So and, clearly, you know, this is an industry teetering on the verge of collapse. Yeah, and the Orioles are reportedly perhaps going to be up for sale, and there are already you know groups of billionaires jockeying for control of that franchise, which is what we see anytime any one of them becomes available. Which is what really I think exposes how misleading the statements from owners are when they say that this is not a profitable business and the losses are going to be biblical and all of that. Like, I'll buy that this is not a great year, that revenues were down significantly. But when you are always saying that, you know, no matter how well things are going, then it's hard to believe you when the hard times actually come. And even if it's hard times, it might just be one or two years of hard times after decades of pretty good times on the whole. So I think, you know, playing up the debt, it, it sounds good. And I think if you're trying to set expectations that there won't be a lot of spending, that's a, a good thing for owners and Manfred to say. But it's hard to parse exactly what that means because debt can be accrued for many reasons. You know, it could be your real estate investments in the area surrounding the team instead of your inability to make payroll, let's say. So between that, between the really sweeping layoffs that we've seen across front offices, and I'm not talking about players now, I'm talking about front office people, both on the baseball ops side and on the business side. It's going to be a, a pretty bleak offseason between that and, and the minor league contraction concerns, the fact that a lot of minor leaguers are and will be out of work. It's just uh, it's going to be a, a kind of a tough offseason to gut through, I think. And with how that applies to this free agent class, I'm kind of curious about the different strata of free agents. You have, I think, a worse top end than last season, for instance, when Garrett Cole could command a record contract than the previous offseason when you had Bryce Harper and Manny Machado. JT Realmuto might be the best or second best catcher in baseball, and he could uh, he could start a bit a bidding war. You have like Trevor Bauer and George Springer are both good players, but I don't think anyone is 
really close to the Cole Harper Machado level. So I, I'm really curious to see how this affects the top end salaries because I have a pretty good idea that at the middle and lower levels of the free agent class, that's going to be where it takes guys to like February to sign and they'll basically be signing one year deals. I'm pretty sure that's how it's going to affect them because we've already seen that over the last few winters without the pandemic affecting the financial picture. So as much as it sucks, that's my expectation there. But I don't know, with like Springer and Bauer and Real Muto, and maybe you want to add like Marcus Stroman or Marcelo Zuna to that group. I also don't really think the top end guys will approach the contracts we might have expected a year ago. Uh, but then again, we saw Mookie Bet sign a giant 12-year extension. He's Mookie Bet. So I guess the question is, does that only apply to him or does that apply to like all all-star level players? Yeah, this is something that that I sort of had to work through when I was writing my uh, free agency power rankings. I put players into tiers like I did last year. That's up on the ringer.com right now. Nobody's going to read it. Uh, so maybe it'll just be useful as, uh, as <laughs> hey, a historical it, document. It's going to apply to February, at which point like That's 47 true. of them will still be free agents. That's true. Uh, but what I said is Real Muto, I think, is the clear best player in this class. Uh, the highest I would have considered putting him last year is fourth, somewhere in that Yasmani Grandal, Josh Donaldson tier. I don't think anybody else would have made the top six or seven. And I think I, you know, I'm really high on George Springer as a, a free agent and some of these other uh, players. But the the difference is this is a really deep class. I went 49 deep in my rankings, and there are probably a couple dozen other players that I think could play a, an important role on a good team, particularly on the pitching side. We've seen a lot of options declined and a lot of um, uh, players struggle to sign extensions based on the the financial uncertainty uh, that drove last season and last season just being so short. I think this is if it was a 162 game season, uh, Rio Muto might have signed an extension last year. There are situations like that where there just wasn't a negotiating window or there was uncertainty about performance. And that sort of flooded the the market with second. Oh, two cute little puppies just ran past my window. Oh, leave that in, Bobby. <laughs> I lost my train of thought. Oh, it's it's flooded. the <laughs> It's flooded the second tier um, with you know quality veteran uh, hitters, quality veteran pitchers. I think that that you could build a, a really strong team. Uh, you know, this is a, a t- the team that spends this year this offseason, if there is one. Uh, could really make out, and that's a, a really prime position for teams like the White Sox and the Blue Jays, big market clubs with lots of young talent, but holes on the roster. Uh, they could could really make out this offseason if they want to. It's just a matter of wanting to. I don't want to pile on with the wet blanket news here, but there is a, a CBA that expires in just over a year, and that is uh, kind of the backdrop for this whole offseason because Tensions have obviously escalated over the last couple of years as free agency has not proven to be the windfall that it once was. And as players have realized, I think that they need to try to restructure this system that it's not working so well for them anymore. And now if we have a, another really slow moving and, and perhaps ultimately unrewarding winter, that's just going to, I think, ramp up the rhetoric and the resolve, and there will be more public spats and sniping, which we saw leading up to the agreement that they finally worked out to play this season. So there's already been some reporting that maybe the owners are interested in pushing back the CBA deadline so they can have those talks a little later, but it doesn't seem like the players have a lot of incentive to do that because they're not happy with the current system. So all of this is just kind of a a powder keg. And if there isn't much spending this winter, that might just be the spark that makes it more likely for there to be a work stoppage in the future. (laughs) As recently, so like I've been writing about labor issues within baseball for a while now. And as recently as like 18 to 24 months ago, I was interested in the problem, in the, the possibility of covering a work stoppage. And that was a really stupid thing <laughs> for me to think, because having gotten a little taste of that with the negotiations based on the restart this year, just knowing the the economic climate, the tenor of of labor relations, like across the American economy, uh, this is going to suck. Even if, uh, like, even if, if this ends up being a, a win for, for the good guys. So I, I don't know. I, I don't see a path to a deal just because the, 
the um the surrounding environmental conditions are they're only one they're you're right ben they're only going to get worse if there's no spending in free agency this year um but everybody's gonna take a harder line um so we'll see we'll see how that goes i was already depressed about free agency and now we're thinking about a strike so thanks for bringing that up then <laughs> i also think as applied to this offseason one of the difficulties with this shorter campaign we just had is just how to evaluate certain players like Marcus Semien, I think is, is a good example. He finished third in AL MVP voting in 2019. It was a breakout season for him, particularly at the plate 2020. You look at his overall numbers and they're not very good. He hit 223 with, you know, below average on base and slugging, but that's because he just had two bad weeks to start the season. If you take out those two weeks, he was an above average hitter. And then in the playoffs, which you don't normally consider as part of a guy's statistics he hit over 400 in the playoffs with a 667 slugging percentage so normally you think ah the first two weeks that's kind of small sample the playoffs small sample but in a 60 game season the first two weeks wreak an overwhelming uh effect on his overall line so that's kind of why his line looks worse and then if you add in his playoff numbers they look even better so Teams really have to consider this guy was an MVP caliber player just two seasons ago. Was that a fluke or was it the two weeks at the start of the season that was the fluke? And I think that's going to lead to a lot of these short-term deals, I think, as teams and and players, frankly, try to navigate having to prove themselves for a longer-term deal. And I wonder if if that's going to just be a, a, a path forward that works for everybody. Um, particularly because we've seen guys like Azuna and DJ LeMahieu really make out on their uh on their short-term deals and and head into free and free agency at the right time the other thing with semi and is he was playing through an injury for a big chunk of the season and with just 60 games like a week or two can be a big chunk of the season we saw there's probably half a dozen pitchers on this list i'm looking at quintana odorizzi cole hamels who had injuries that would have been like eight week or 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 three month injuries that ended up wiping out their entire season. And so now instead of, Oh, you know, he's getting older. Can he stay healthy for 33 starts? But he was pretty good in 15 or 20 starts. We're coming into, Oh, he's getting old and he essentially hasn't pitched in two years. And that's a much tougher Corey Kluber is another example of this too. It's a much tougher, uh, uh, negotiating position for, for some of these older pitchers who I think can still really do it, uh, do a job. Um, but they're, they need teams to sort of take that on faith. And that's, it's, it's tougher to sell that now than it's ever been. Yeah. And even if the free agent move, even if the free agent market doesn't move quickly, we're still potentially going to see some big players dangled or, or Delta. There might be some sort of trade market, as some teams that feel like they can't or won't spend look to offload those contracts, you know, Francisco Lindor, Nolan Arenado, they'll be back on the market most likely. And another storyline that we will probably be seeing resolved at some point this winter is expanded playoffs. You know, maybe not 16 teams, but maybe 14, something higher than 10. I don't think any of us is in favor of that. We've talked about that at length, but one would think that if there are still concerns about revenue in 2021, the owners will look to make that permanent or at least in place for another year. And they'll have to give the players something in order to do that. And maybe it'll wait for the CPA to be resolved. I don't know, but I think they'll want to strike while the iron is hot there and make that happen. And that could mean that certain teams don't have a whole lot of incentive to get better because they figure that they can make the expanded playoffs just as they are. So we've talked about that effect before, and that's another thing to keep in mind for this winter. All right. So let's wrap up this discussion with some predictions. Let's, uh, there's no like formal rubric for this, but let's just go around the horn and, and match a player to a team, whether you think that player is a good fit or you think that the the tea leaves are, are what do tea leaves do? Do they shake out? Do they clump up? Whether the tea leaves are clumping up in a, a portentous fashion for, say, a Trevor Bauer to the Yankees move, for instance, who who are some players that, that you'd be interested to see in certain uniforms? So, Zach, this was your idea. So you get to go first. <laughs> Um, one of the reasons I thought about this idea is because of Real Muto, who I think is in a really interesting position as 
maybe the best or second best player, as I said, at a position that isn't that deep in the majors right now, he could really make a difference if you look at it from like a wins above replacement formulation. And I think uh, him going to the Mets would be fascinating in part because of what he would mean for that team. Uh, I would love to see Real Muto catching Jacob deGrom, for instance, because he's turned himself into a very good framer. But I also think there's a possibility that if anybody is going to spend a lot of money this winter, it's going to be the Mets, which is a wild thing to say, but they just changed ownership and Steve Cohen is far wealthier than any other major league owner. And I think sometimes you see new owners really want to make a splash right away, whether it's hiring a new front office or just making a bunch of trades. And I think there's a possibility that Cohen, who has wanted to buy the Mets for a long time, says, I can afford it. Go give me Real Muto for $25 million oh, a yes. year. The Lucy is holding the billionaires. <laughs> will spend their own money on players football down again. And here we are taking another run at it. Go ahead. keep it's, it's maybe a bit of a pipe dream, but I think uh, that would be a really good matchup, both in terms of actual fit on the team and then also as a signal to Mets fans who I think would be overjoyed to see an owner actually willing to spend a good amount of money in free agency. The other I mean, the other side effect of that is after the past two Philly seasons, if Real Muto signed, if Real Muto, who by by all accounts was was happy in Philadelphia, gets more money from the Mets, it might become actually unsafe to to live in the Delaware Valley considering the the course of the Eagle season. I think the Daryl Morey hire might be the only thing keeping that entire civilization from collapsing if that happens. So just from a there there are mitigating factors in in my interest in seeing Real Muto go to the Mets. But I think that that's I mean that's probably the loudest rumor for for any of the uh, any of these free agents right now. And I think another team that's probably in that camp of kind of potentially in on everyone is the Blue Jays. You know, I don't know how 2020 would affect their finances, but I know when I looked at MLB trade rumors, top 50 free agents, they do predictions for where guys will go. And I think they're four of the top five free agents on their list either were predicted to go to the Blue Jays or had the Blue Jays listed as a potential contender. And they just seemed like a team that, you know, there are a few places where they can upgrade. So you could potentially see them being in the bidding for Bauer, but also for Springer or even, you know, DJ LeMahieu or, or Real Muto. I mean, almost anyone could fit there in theory. And they, I think, intended to spend now. This was the time when their payroll was supposed to ramp up again after they cut back and rebuilt and then they make it back to the playoffs. I think this would, you know, in theory, be the time when they would start investing in free agents and trying to build around that core. And so you could connect them to a lot of those teams if 2020 didn't derail those financial uh, outlook for that financial outlook for them. Yeah, and th- another reason why they're uh, an interesting player is because of the amount of flexibility they have. Like, apart from Pearson and Ryu, they essentially need an entire pitching staff. A lot of these second-tier pitchers on the market are ex-Blue Jays. Um, and the other thing is, apart from Bichette, they can move everybody around. They can play right. Vlad Guerrero at first or DH, and they can play Biggio at, at second or third. They can move Lourdes, Lourdes Gurriel to a couple positions. So that makes them an interesting landing spot, not just for pitchers, but some of these left side of the defensive spectrum position players, your Ozuna types. And so, uh, yeah, I, or LeMahieu, you can plug him in at, at any, at like three different positions. So yeah, the Blue Jays are, they're, there's like the, the saying that like college football is better when Texas is good or Notre Dame's good. Like the Blue Jays aren't that kind of blue blood team, but I think baseball is more fun when when they're good, when they're acting like the big market team that they are. The 2015 Blue Jays are probably the most fun team I've ever watched without a rooting interest. A hundred percent. I loved, love, love that team. Um, so maybe that belief is just, it's not that baseball is more fun than when the Blue Jays are good, but the only time in the past 25 years that the Blue Jays were, were good, they were incredibly fun. Um, one guy who I think is not getting talked up, but I think Real Muto is, is getting deserved uh discussion because of that 
the position he's in with the Phillies because he's a potential Mets target because he's the best, certainly the best position player, probably the best player overall in this class. Um, and Bauer's getting talked up a lot. Marcus Stroman's getting a lot of discussion. It feels like George Springer's almost going under the radar. He was number two on my my free agent rankings. He's an interesting player uh, because I don't think I'm. I don't think this is breaking new ground, but I don't think he's a center fielder long term. But he's one of the one of those players who can sort of age out of center and slot over in right field and play there and is uh, through his, his mid 30s. So I think if he gets like a four or five year deal, he could be the kind of person who revitalizes a lineup, whether I don't know if that's Toronto. The team I had in my head that would be really interesting to see him on uh, would be Washington, because that could allow him to move to. Uh, to right field immediately put him in the lineup with with Soto and Turner and some of those other sluggers um, all of a sudden that team's really scary again so uh, I guess Washington is probably where I would like to see him the most but he could go to the White Sox he could go any number of you know half a dozen other places and and really be an impact player I think he's really getting overlooked in this in this discourse and because he was on those 2017 and 2018 Astros teams, he's going to be connected to the sign-stealing scandal. And wherever he signs and whenever he signs, he'll probably have to answer some questions about it in the press conference. But he's gotten away with this. I I wrote about that <laughs> yeah. when I did the succession bit that like nobody's mad right. at George Springer. He's been very quiet. Because he hasn't made the Carlos Correa comments that <laughs> make everyone well, mad, maybe. But also, I think because he's been very successful in the season since, like his best offensive seasons are 2019 and 2020. So even though he does seem to have been one of the most active participants in the banging scheme, at least based on the banging based data that we have from Tony Adams, it doesn't seem like he has been affected adversely in any way. Whereas guys like Altuve and Correa and Bregman had you know some degree of dip in 2020 where if you were convinced that they were cheating right up until last season you could convince yourself that they weren't as good this year because they didn't know what pitch was coming you can't really make that argument about string about Springer one thing that I love about the 2020 season is how we occasionally just say sentences that are normal now that even 12 months ago would have sounded like Total moon man talk. The the banging, banging database. Data. Thanks. <laughs> yeah. What a, can what I, a world we live in. Can I toss out one more uh, that just struck me as we were doing this segment and now uh, is quickly uh, consuming my thoughts? Yes. And that is Corey Kluber to the Dodgers. Because Whoa. I think, there you go. I don't think this will happen, but the Dodgers do have a trend over the last few seasons of signing guys who might not give them anything, but are really talented when they're not injured. I'm thinking like Alex Wood, or they've done this a lot with relievers, Blake Trinan, who proved to be an important part of their World Series winning team uh, in 2020. And I think Kluber fits that mold really well. He's barely pitched the last two seasons because of a few different injuries, but this is the guy who was a top three Cy Young finisher for a bunch of years not that long ago. And I think it's not like the Dodgers can't afford him. It's not like they necessarily need him in their rotation. But given what we were what we were robbed of this year, trying to see if the Dodgers could challenge the all-time wins record, I would be fascinated to see them go after someone like him and try to build out a potential rotation with Kershaw, Bueller, David Price, who will be back, Kluber, May, Gonsolin, Urias. Like, the Dodgers are the kind of team that likes to put together seven different starting pitchers who can all pitch when they're not hurt and i think kluber would be a really interesting one-year flyer in that in that vein i'm gonna throw one one other off the board uh uh, combination out there i just i've had a rough year and can i just have jackie bradley on the phillies please i spent most of 29 or most of 2009 2010 and 2011 clamoring for the phillies to draft him he went one pick after they selected larry green they don't really have a, a solid defensive center fielder. They're a very right-handed heavy lineup. Just like for one year, I just want to see him in the pinstripes and and I'll be happy and I'll shut up, shut up about this forever. I hope that happens that's, for you. Yeah, that's the Michael Bauman selection in, in a lot of different respects, I think. Yeah, it's uh, probably the most predictable thing I've ever said on this podcast. <laughs> Cram and um, Ben, I feel like you guys undersold that. You should have been way more excited about that just so Bauman would shut up about this. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know. 
Ben and I have been podcasting together uh, since what, like mid 2016. Yep. And Ben has never sold a single one of my jokes or gags or bits. And that has become a bit in and of itself. That's like what what this podcast is known for, I think, is I try to get a reaction out of Ben and it just doesn't happen. And so the deafening silence that that uh, met my Jackie Bradley prediction slash uh, uh, slash hope um, was disappointing, but not altogether surprising. It's just hard to get me worked up about the Phillies at this point. Like they have been rebuilding for so long without ever really coming They're not close rebuilding anymore, to man. The they haven't been rebuilding for a while. They just suck. <laughs> yeah, and especially if Real Muto goes, like, what was this all for? It's just kind of a bummer and hard to get me worked up in a positive direction I'm, about. What I'm trying what not doing. to be a huge homer about the Real Muto thing, but it's gonna be it's going to be such a kick in the nuts to that franchise if he walks. And I, I we'll talk about this, I guess, if, if and when it happens. But what a what a comprehensive institutional failure that would be, even if they signed Jackie Bradley, which would probably appease nobody but me. All right, we're going to stick in the prediction theme uh, and revisit our preseason prognostications. Uh, but first, we're going to take a quick break, and we'll be back right after this. This episode is brought to you by UGG. Y'all know UGG is a brand that athletes wear all the time in the tunnel and on travel days. Well, I bet you think UGG season is only during the colder months of the year. Au contraire, you're wrong. You need to check out the latest spring drop from UGG. They have everything from sandals to clogs. I like the sandals. UGG has you covered for your next spring adventure. Shop the Golden Collection at UGG.com. This episode is brought to you by NetSuite by Oracle. As your business grows, you might start seeing some lag. There's too much work for your team, too many different processes, and it takes forever to close the books. If this sounds like you, you should know these three numbers, 37,000, 25 and one. 37,000 is the number of businesses that have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. It's a cloud financial system that can help streamline accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25, that's how many years NetSuite has been helping businesses do more with less. And one, because your one-of-a-kind business deserves a customized solution for your KPIs. It's like when you come here for this podcast or when you check out your favorite website to gather all the info you need to make better decisions for your fantasy leagues. Well, NetSuite does that for your business and then some. It's one efficient system, one source of truth with everything you need to grow. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com slash ringer. That is netsuite.com slash ringer. This episode is brought to you by Lincoln and the all new 2024 Nautilus Hybrid featuring a customizable 48-inch panoramic display, available Revel audio system, and available perfect position front seats with active motion massage. Oh my God. The world isn't wide enough. Visit lincoln.com to learn more. Some models, trims, and features may not be available or may be subject to change. Check with your local retailer for current information. Lincoln and Nautilus are trademarks of Ford or its affiliates. All right. So real quick, we do this every year. I come up with a list of preposterous prop bets, over-unders, the like, uh, and set them or put them to the rest of the MLB crew before every season and after every season. Uh, well, not after every season. Sometimes we just forget, but we didn't forget this time. We're going to revisit uh, seven of those predictions uh, that I asked for uh, before the season. And honestly, I think the big winner is me because it turns out I'm really good at setting over unders. <laughs> so uh, we're going to see who got most of these right. Uh, the first one, when the NCAA women's basketball season was suspended, Dawn Staley, South Carolina Gamecocks were number one in the country with a record of 32 and one. How many MLB teams will win more games than the Gamecocks this year? I set the over under at nine and a half. It came in at 10. And so Bobby actually has the 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 answers that, that we gave. So who got this one right? I hate your head is going to get too big because you were good with the over under numbers. I was and also really you were the, the only unders. one you were the only one who started off and got this one correct. So you yes. said over and Ben and Zach both said under. 
I did? <laughs> yeah. Ah, oh, I thought I said over on this one as I was recollecting this morning. Darn. It's okay. It's going to be really controversial not... if I mess that up because it was the first thing that I listened to this morning when I woke up. And as many people know, we're recording this on Wednesday morning. <laughs> <laughs> All right. More, more returns. Uh, who will play more competitive games, regular and postseason, between now and the end of the 2020 season? Toronto Blue Jays top pitching prospect, Nate Pearson, and Toronto Maple Leafs captain, John Tavares. This one came down to the wire. We needed Pearson got hurt at four. He needed one playoff appearance uh, to get over the hump, but he got six appearances. The Leafs, as is their custom, got knocked out in the first round of the playoffs with Tavares playing five games. Bowman again. Bowman chose Pearson, and Ben and Cram both chose Tavares. Was I really the only one who... who that's wild. Uh, so maybe part of the reason I'm doing better than these guys you is... you made the question up that high. I made, well, the I made the questions I'm up, and, and I roped in sports that I follow, but you guys don't. Yes. Except so. that Cram like, ran a regression uh, yeah, on this did. and like That's weighted true. the averages of how many games he expected in different simulations <laughs> that the blue, whatever, Maple Leafs would play. I guessed completely. And in fact, this is breaking news to me because right. I still did not know how many games Toronto Maple Leafs captain John Tavares played. So I'm sad for him now. Yeah, ben what's really not news to everybody? What's what's not news to everybody is that Zach act Zach like did actual math for this, and Ben just didn't give a shit, <laughs> and, and and we ended up in the same place. Yeah. <laughs> Where's your math, God? Now, okay, this this one uh, also very close. Josh Hamilton had the highest uh, single season batting average in the 2010s at 359. Will any qualified hitter beat that mark in 2020? Uh, also very close. 364 DJ LeMahieu got over the hump by that's got to be like one hit, right? Or something like that. So who got who got this one? Uh, we're turning the tide around here. Cram and Ben both said yes. Bauman, you said no. All right. Because of, quote, right. the way that things are trending in the last 10 years of baseball. Although I will say, Bauman, you followed up and asked Ben and Cram if anyone would break 372. And they both said yes to that as well. So doesn't count. Split the difference. Optional. Uh, last year, the Baltimore Ravens won 14 regular season games. How are the Ravens doing this year? Anybody you asked that like okay. anyone else on this podcast would <laughs> I know don't better know. than you. <laughs> Zach knows everything. You do podcasts across the spectrum. I don't know. Like an occupational I think hazard. They of... have, I think they have five wins out of seven, maybe. I want to say. Like that. But, okay, finish the prop. Batman. Finish the prop. You're going to say you don't produce any of the NFL shows and you're, you're upset that I don't know that? No, I don't produce any of the NFL shows, but I don't care that you don't know that because who, I could I could produce seven of them for all anyone knows. All right. Last year, the Ravens won 14 games. Will the Orioles win at least that many this regular season? Uh, they beat this by a lot more than I think any of us predicted because one of our bits this preseason was Zach was was all in on the the single-digit win Baltimore Orioles. Uh, they won double digits by plenty. They won 25 games this year. Both Cram and Mike chose no, that they would that they chose that the Orioles would win less than 14 games, <laughs> which was deranged at the time. And I think you even said as much, Zach. And Ben, you chose yes, that they would go over. Okay. Uh, number five, I'm going to save to the end Ugh. because it's special. Yeah. Number, <laughs> we'll come back to that one. Number six, last year, the Astros led MLB in team-wide contact rate by almost two percentage points. After the banging scheme, this season they will rank top two, third through six, or outside the top six. They led the league in contact rate again this year. So who who got that one? I think all three of you got that one. Yeah. All right. We all had See, it didn't matter. the Astros. <laughs> and they still sucked. <laughs> yeah. This one, somehow the second funniest uh, result in this uh uh, in this list of predictions, uh, which who will produce more war? And this is the product of the uh, the Padres race trades. The Padres end of Tommy Pham, Jake Cronenworth and Emilio Pagan or Hunter Renfro and Manuel Margot. Uh, the Padres produced more war. The Rays went to the World Series. So it's tough to say who won the trade, but who won the bet? It was the Padres end. 1.3 war, most of which came off the bat of 2015 Big Ten Tournament most outstanding player, Jake Cronenworth. Uh, all three of you said the Padres side, and most mostly because of Tommy Pham, which was not the reason that they won this uh, trade. But I will say, 
Don't you think like if Manuel Margot completed the steal, then it would be like a moral victory for the Rays? I think they would have yeah. quote unquote just won this trade. <laughs> yeah, yeah, attempting the steal was a moral victory. That ruled. And also, yeah. he had like, like a 900 OPS in the playoffs. <laughs> he was pretty great, even aside from that. Man, what a weird player. Okay, uh, so this uh, the whole pretty much the whole reason we're even revisiting this is because of how question five shook out bobby said before the pod this is the funniest thing that's ever happened to us it might be the bet is which will be greater this year shohei otani's innings pitched or the total of this is other players essentially that we expected to or thought could go both ways this year Brendan McKay's played appearances, Michael Lorenzen's played appearances, Jake Cronenworth's batters faced, and Jared Walsh's batters faced. Shohei Otani threw one and two thirds innings this year, so you would think that he his end would lose this side of the bet, but the other two way guys uh, combined for one two way plate appearance, one at bat for Michael Lorenzen. Uh, so Otani takes it one and two thirds to one. Ugh, agonizing it came down to the last weekend <laughs> like we were all rooting or at least i was rooting for uh like one more lorenzen plate appearance or something <laughs> but it you just... were you were considering placing a call to the padres <laughs> yeah. front office asking if they could get cronenworth to mop cronenworth got to too good that's the problem he had too good a year he's uh he's too valuable to use in mop-up work now uh so for this one, I think Ben took the field and Bauman and Cram stuck with Otani. Although I remember in listening back, Ben saying that he thought Otani would only get to about 60 innings. <laughs> and so, That's all, huh? Maybe not working at the correct scale there. Yeah. He might get to 60 innings by this time in 2022. <laughs> yeah. But. I immediately regretted this pick because as both of you rightly pointed out, with the expanded rosters, there just wasn't really any need to use these position players in relief, which was unfortunate, but that really just kind of took away the incentive for teams to use anyone as a two-way player. So I immediately recognized that you were probably right, but then I almost ended up winning anyway because Otani just <laughs> barely pitched at all, which is like not something I'm happy about, to be clear. I would uh, yeah. very gladly have had Shohei Otani have a full healthy season and to lose this miserably, but uh, that did not happen. Those His two starts were excruciating, oh, and they barely even register. I on, know. Like, they, and then he kept hitting yep. for the rest of the season and didn't hit either, which was depressing in its own way. You know, whether that was because his arm was hurt and maybe it actually does affect you if you are hurt enough that you can't pitch. Maybe that affects you as a hitter, too. Anyway, this whole year was just kind of a, a loss for him. And that's sad because seeing the, the two-way Otani again was the thing I was most looking forward to this season. And I'm hoping we can just write off 2020 with him and he'll come back next year fully operational but you saw the two-way otani yeah just, just for about a week for, yeah yeah the only silver lining is maybe the fact that he hit so poorly means the angels won't be as motivated to turn him into a full-time hitter <laughs> yeah. like he got hurt and maybe he sandbagged because he knew if he got a, a 150 ops plus again that the team would say ah like this whole pitching thing maybe we should turn you into a full-time hitter so instead he went out and hit below the Mendoza line to maintain his pitching bona fides. Cool. That counts as a silver lining in this day. And age. Yep. That was some serious galaxy brain cram. I love it. <laughs> I, yeah. The Otani story, like we didn't talk about it much on the podcast this year, but outside like the obvious ones of uh, COVID and injuries and everything like that, like the Otani storyline was the biggest bummer of the season for me because of how special I find him as a player and how completely it imploded and very quickly. Um, and even like when he first hurt himself a couple years ago, he still had that amazing September at the plate and on the bases and just none of it manifested this season, which I guess fits with the entire Angels campaign. Uh, but it's a real bummer for somebody who's now three years into his MLB career and we haven't seen that two way uh, excellence we expected beyond just a couple months as a rookie. All right. So that feels like a good place to and the podcast for the time being. Uh, as far as the off season goes, we're going to be back with topical shows with uh, for big free agent signings, trades, maybe three of them in three days if it shakes out the same way it did last off season. But uh, until then, uh, this has been, you know what? 
it hasn't been fun. This year was super weird, and I'm glad it's over. Uh, but I've enjoyed podcasting with you guys. Uh, thank you, Zach. Until next time. Thank you, Ben. Thank you. Thank you, Bobby, for producing today's episode and all of our episodes and going back and listening to our preview show where we made all these predictions. Uh, thank you to Jerry Reinsdorf and Shohei Otani and Nate Pearson for giving us stuff to talk about today. Thank you for listening. Enjoy the off season and we'll see you next time.